Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Continue in Proverbs today, Proverbs 28, verse 18, for our call to confession. Whoever walks in integrity will be delivered, but he who is crooked in his ways will suddenly fall. This proverb contrasts a person who is characterized by a general pattern of integrity to that of one of crookedness. A person whose walk is characterized by crookedness may say that he is eager to give his best effort to a full day work, but he only does so if his boss is watching. A, rook, a crooked person in his way, I'm sorry, a crooked person uh, may want to come to church and when it's convenient, only when it's convenient for him, only when it can work to his advantage, maybe to get the next sales lead or to stay on someone's good side. The crooked person will tell the truth when it's his advantage to do so. Otherwise, crook, or otherwise, for the crooked man, truth is not their standard. A person crooked in his ways will think of caring for others when there is something to be gained for him in doing so. In contrast to the crooked person, a person who walks in integrity is known to be trustworthy. He speaks the truth, whether it benefits him or not. He is careful in making vows, but once giving his word, he is faithful to keep it. He does not accommodate sin as a way of life. Sure, he slips up, just like Abraham did, just like Isaac did, just like David did. But sinful, crooked ways are not what characterized their lives. And by faith, they were delivered. Faith was credited to these men of integrity as righteousness. Like our forebears who walked in integrity, we confess our sins, our slip-ups, and receives God's grace of forgiveness for us. He has declared us righteous in Jesus. Please kneel where you are if you're willing and able to confess your sins together. Father, we thank you for gathering us together as your beloved sheepfold, not because of any merit within us, not because we're good enough humble enough or wise enough, but simply because you have given us your grace, even though we are in no way deserving of it, and we have no explanation besides that you are good and that you love us. So we thank you for that, Father. I pray now that as I teach your people from your word about what it means to keep our speech pure, I pray that you would bless my work, that you would help me to feed your people faithfully, that my own weaknesses would not get in the way and that you grant us all ears to hear and hearts that are receptive to your word. Father, we ask these things in complete dependency upon the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Brothers, sisters, I'm going to start this morning by reading to you uh, the passage of God's word that I'm going to be preaching on. That's found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. We are working through Ephesians right now. Back at Trinity, um, so I figured that it would be uh, edifying for you 
to hear what uh, we're working through down, down in Indiana. But if you would turn to uh, Ephesians 5, 1 through 5, please, and I will start in verse 1. Please give your full attention to what the Spirit of God is saying to us through His servant Paul. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This is the word of God, saints. Now Paul, in his start to chapter 5, is continuing his train of thought from chapter 4. And the, the overall theme here is Paul's exhortation to us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that we have received. And we see that back in chapter 4. We have been called to be the people of Christ and to live as children of God. And he continues that thought here, that what it means to walk worthy, as according to our calling, is to recognize ourselves as the beloved children of God. And as his beloved children, we are to imitate God. We are to imitate God. Now, when Paul says imitate God, he does not mean try to become God. That's very obvious. He doesn't mean try to take God's place Right? Try to become creator. That's impossible. That's not what he's saying. He's really, he's keeping it very simple for us because we all know what he's talking about. Especially those of us who are fathers here. Dads, what do your children do? They imitate you. Right? What is your wife always reminding you of when your children are repeating your sinful behavior? Right? Your same patterns. That's your son. Right? He's following your example. He got that from you. Right? Right? Children imitate their fathers. Why? Because that's how we're built. That's how we're made. Children are made to imitate dad. They love dad. And they think, well, dad is the one who's the example. If I want to know how to live, how to act, how to think, I'm going to look to dad and follow his example. And Paul is saying, God is our father. That's an amazing statement. That's incredible considering the fact that we were originally sons and daughters of Adam and deserving of God's wrath, but because of God's grace in Christ, we've been adopted. Paul reminds us of that. He starts the whole book by pointing us to the adoption we've received in Christ. That's the main, what's one of the central themes in Ephesians, God is your father, right? And he, Paul is saying that since God is your father, and since you know he loves you, you know he does, Paul made that argument, chapters 1 and 2, he gave us his son, he crushed his son in order to save us, and to bring uh, end, enmity between us and God to bring peace, since we know that God loves us, that knowledge of God's love for us ought to move us to imitate Him. We are to imitate God because we love Him. That is so key, saints. Understanding this is fundamental to understanding the Christian life and the motive behind the Christian life. Why do we imitate God? Why do we live lives or strive to live lives of holiness? 
Why do we repent of our sin? Why do we keep our speech pure? Are we trying to earn God's acceptance? Are we trying to win our way into his family? No. The reason why we live lives of holiness, the reason why we imitate God is because we know he loves us. Not to earn his love, but because we have already received his love. You've got to understand that. Because if you look at the Christian life as an attempt to earn the love of God by being good enough, you have misunderstood the gospel and you have misunderstood God himself and the nature of your relationship with him. He is not our employer who gives us salvation as an employer gives wages to his workers. That's not who God is. God is our father. And his love for us does not depend upon our performance. That's an amazing thing, but it's true. His love for us does not depend upon our holiness even. His love for us is free. And it's because of that free love he has given us in Christ that we imitate him and that we follow him. Not to earn his love, but because we have already received it. And we demonstrate that we have received his love and that we understand the depth of his love for us when we imitate him. That's how we show God we're thankful. That's how we signal to him, I know what you've done for me. I know what you accomplished for me in your son. So I'm going to obey you. I'm going to imitate you. I'm going to be like you, strive to be like you. You are responding to what God has already given you. And you know, this is maybe the biggest reason why I'm a Reformed Christian. Because when I look at Reformed theology and the Reformed tradition, it most clearly, of all the various traditions and theologies within Christendom, Reformed theology most clearly recognizes that God's acceptance of us, that his love for us, does not depend upon our own performance or effort or merit, but upon his free and unmerited love for us. That is a pillar of Reformed teaching, of Reformed theology. The grace of God is free. The grace of God is unmerited. God's love for his children does not depend upon anything in them. So what does it mean to imitate God? What is Paul telling us to do when he tells us to imitate God? Well, there's a few answers to that. It means to put on the new man. I spoke on that the last time I was here, I believe. It means putting on the new man and putting the flesh to death and walking in a manner that is worthy of our calling. But in summary, if I need to sum it up, what does it mean to imitate God? <clears throat> it means loving what God loves and finding joy in what brings joy to God. That's what it means to imitate God. I love what he loves. I find joy, I take pleasure in what brings him pleasure. And what, what does God love? What brings him joy? Holiness, love for others, community, putting away sin, so that, uh, that way I'm actually walking in love for God and my brethren. That's what brings joy to God. So if I'm going to imitate God, I'm going to do exactly what Paul says. He, gives, he answers the question for us right there in verse 2. What does it mean to imitate God? It means to walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Right there, Paul shows us this is what pleases God. This is how to imitate God. Jesus is God. How do you imitate God? Do what Jesus did. And what did Jesus do? He gave himself up as an offering for others. He put his own needs 
aside and put the needs of others ahead of his own out of love for God and out of love for us. And that pleased God. It was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to him. And so if we're going to be imitators of God, if we're to find joy in what God finds joy in, then that's how we're going to live. We're going to put others before ourselves, selflessly giving yourself for others. That is what pleases God. And when we follow Christ's example in our own lives, we also are living as pleasing sacrifices to God. You know, that's something I think is important for all of us to keep in mind because we're sinners. And as Greg reminded us today in our time of confession, we all slip up. We all fall short. Even the heroes of the faith, right? Scripture is wonderful. Scripture is not delicate with them. Scripture shows us their failures in big, bold terms, right? It's right there. We know how Abraham failed. We really know how Jacob failed. And let's talk about David for a minute, right? Their failures are recorded for us. And we're just like them. We're no better than David. We're no better than Abraham. We're no better than Jacob. And we're no better than Peter and all the other apostles. We fall too. We slip up. And because of our sin and our constant struggle against sin, which is every day, it's very easy for us to think that there's no way in the world God could be pleased with us. That it is impossible for us to please God that will never be good enough. And in one sense, that's true. We could never earn his acceptance, we could never earn our salvation if it depended upon our performance. But just because we could never earn our salvation by our performance, by our works, doesn't mean that God is never pleased with us. Because you have to remember, He is our Father. Very clear in Scripture, He's our Father. And as our Father, that means when we strive to obey Him, and we are actually honoring Him in our lives, as imperfect as our obedience is, He really is pleased with us. And you need to remember that. God is pleased with you. He is pleased with you when you obey Him. He is not a grouchy father who's cantankerous and hard to please, who's always raising the bar so high you can never attain it. God is pleased with your imperfect, wart-filled obedience because of Jesus. He is pleased with you. So obey Him. It pleases Him. It, it, it amazes us because we know all of our righteousness are like filthy rags to him. And yet we know through Christ, our obedience to him pleases him. It gives joy to our father when we are imitating him. So please God, because you can. You can please him. You do please him. So do so by obeying him. Now Paul, starting in verse 3 tells us what not to do, what we must not do if we are to be imitators of God and if we are to live like Christ and if we are to uh, give joy to our Father and please Him in the way we live our lives. Now, Scripture makes this point clear to us, that the Word of God is pure, right? Read Psalm 119. It's pure. The Word of God is purer than gold. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is true and pure. And more valuable than all the precious jewels and sweeter than honey. So we can say this with utmost certainty that God's speech is pure. And if we are to be imitators of God, that means that our speech must be pure as well. This is Paul's point. If you're going to be an imitator of God, then you must, like God, have pure speech. What comes out of your mouth? Such essential concern. 
for Paul in Ephesians. And not only in Ephesians, we see it in James and in the Gospels. Scripture is very concerned for what comes out of our mouth. And you know why that is? Here's one reason why. First of all, what comes out of our mouth reveals who we really are. Right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Here's another reason. Because I would say, and this is just shooting from the hip, right? It's a guesstimate, but I think it's a well-informed guesstimate. I would wager that 95% of our sin, if you could measure such a thing, comes out of this, the mouth. 95% of the time when we are sinning against one another and sinning against our Father and failing to imitate Him, it is in our speech. And the way we communicate is in our communication. Does that sound right to you? I mean, we're not going around beating one another up. Most of us aren't stealing money from other people. At least I hope not, right? When we sin, most of the time, it's with our lips. It's with our words. And this is why Paul emphasizes pure speech. Because it is such a temptation to have impure speech. Because it's so easy to sin with your mouth. Isn't it? It's cheap. Word talk is cheap. We all hear that, and that's true. It's easy just to blurt something out and to sin and to gratify the flesh by saying something foolish and impure or hurtful. And that's why Paul spends so much time addressing it here. So he tells us that our speech must be pure, and he here, obviously, as we see, he is zeroing in on sexual immorality. That's in his crosshairs here. He's talking about sexual immorality, sexual immorality and our speech. Again, Scripture is not delicate, right? Scripture is bold and riding up in our grills, dealing with our sin. Things that polite society would rather avoid, Scripture rips out in the open, puts on the table, and says, we are going to talk about this. It makes you uncomfortable. God doesn't care. We need to talk about this, all right? And so sexual immorality in relationship to purity of speech. Now, the thing I want you to understand here in verse 3 is that Paul, when his transition to the matter of sexual immorality, he is, he is painting a striking contrast between walking in love, which he exhorts us to do in verse 2, and sexual sin. He is placing those two things in absolute contrast with one another. They are opposed to one another. Walking in love stands in contradiction to sexual immorality. Those two things never go together. So Paul's point here, his implicit point, is that sexual immorality is the opposite of walking in love. Always, by definition, it is inescapable. Walking in love is the opposite of sexual immorality, and sexual immorality is the opposite of walking in love. We could say this, that sexual immorality is opposed to love. And why is sexual immorality inherently opposed to love? Because sexual immorality is inescapably selfish. It is always selfish. It is always centered upon the self. It is never centered upon the glory of God, and it is never centered upon the good of others. Never. There is no situation in which sexual immorality and love go together. 
Such a situation does not exist. To look for such a situation where you have someone living in sexual immorality and living in love at the same time is like hunting for a square circle. It's a contradiction in terms. You will never find it. Why am I bringing this up and harping on this point? Well, think about our society right now. What is our society? What are you confronted with nearly every day as you're living your life, as you're going to work, as you're at home and watching the news and going to the store and associating with your unbelieving neighbors? You are hearing that sexual immorality and love go together. That it is possible to live in sexual immorality and, be, and have love and live in love at the same time. This is the, this is the justification behind gay marriage. You understand, right? What's the argument? The argument is we ought to validate gay marriage because we, won't, we don't want to prevent two people who are in love from one another from enjoying that love. We want to keep them from living in love together. That's a lie. Because it's not possible to be in a sexually immoral relationship and love the person in whom you're with, in that relationship with. You can't do both at the same time. No matter how much someone living in an immoral relationship may say they love that person, no matter how, and judging by appearances, no matter how taken they may seem to be with one another, it is not love. It may appear to be love, it may appear to be affection, but it is a lie. It is self-destruction. Two people living in a sexual, immoral relationship, you know, it could be two homosexuals, it could be a guy and a gal who are living together before they're married, that sexual immorality is the same thing. And they may say, I've worked with folks before. I've worked with couples. And they've used that justification. You know, we're living together and we're, you know, we're being marital with one another even though we're not married yet. Well, how can you justify that? Well, you know, we're not married, but we love each other. That's not love, folks. It's not love. When you do that, when you engage in sexual immorality with another person, you are pursuing that person's destruction, actually. You are promoting that person's hurtling toward the wrath of God. Paul warns us of that later on in this very chapter. For these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. He says it later on in this very chapter. All right? And that's something we have to remember. When you engage in sexual immorality with another person, you are pursuing their destruction. It is not love. Now... Let me back up a little bit and explain why sexual immorality and love don't go together. Two reasons I want to give you, all right? Here's the first one. Sexual immorality and love can never go together with love because it is based upon the refusal to imitate God. Sexual immorality is based upon the refusal to imitate God. We see this in Romans 1.21. Paul makes it very clear in Romans 1, actually, that those who engage in sexual immorality are refusing to honor God. They are refusing to acknowledge Him as God. They are refusing to give thanks to Him as Creator. And they are stubbornly refusing to put God before themselves. So those who are living in sexual sin, including you and me, whenever we entertain it in our own lives, know what we're doing when we entertain sexual immorality, either in our bodies or in our thoughts, we are exalting, it's idolatry, we are exalting our desires over God. That's a sobering thought, but that's what we're doing. We're creating a little, a little idol over God, and we're worshiping it instead of the one true God when we give into sexual sin. We're taking our desire, 
and we're putting it in priority over the very father who crushed his son for our redemption. We shouldn't do that, saints. We ought never do that. We ought never exalt our desires over our father. He comes first, right? At all times, regardless of what we want. But since that's what sexual immorality entails, exalting selfish desire over God, this means that those who are living in sexual immorality cannot possibly possibly be an imitator of God at the same time. You cannot live in sexual sin and imitate God at the same time. And that means that if you are not imitating God, you are not walking in love. So we need to get all sexual... That's why Paul says it should not even be named among us. We need to get rid of sexual immorality. Second reason why sexual immorality is absolutely incompatible with love is because it is covetousness. And Paul points to that here in this passage. Sexual immorality is covetousness. It is covetousness because it is lusting after something that does not belong to you and you are claiming it for yourself. That's why it's covetousness. In this sense, sexual immorality is a breach of the second greatest commandment. It is a failure to love others as you love yourself. Paul makes this argument in 1 Corinthians 7 when he talks about a husband's desire for his wife and a wife's desire for her husband. That's lawful. Why is it lawful? Well, Paul puts it in economic terms. It's lawful for a husband and wife to desire one another because they are one another's property. The husband's body is the property of his wife and the wife's body is the property of her husband and because they belong to one another and they have a lawful claim upon one another's body it is lawful for them to desire one another and that's wonderful and the gift of God that's why marriage is not covetous because you have rights to each other you have you hold property rights you hold the title deed to one another I know it's weird to think in those terms but that's how scripture describes it we're, I'm my wife's property. She's mine. And that means we don't share, right? No trespassing allowed. There's no trespassing signs all around us, right? No trespassing. And that's why sin is covet- sexual immorality is covetousness because then you're breaking through, you're breaking down those covenantal fences and you're trespassing. You're going over into your neighbor's pasture and you're claiming his ox for yourself. Why do you think... God's law said, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's ox, your neighbor's servant, because we're coveters to the core. And sexual immorality is all about covetousness. It's hatred of neighbor. Hatred of neighbor to covet what your neighbor has. And that's why sexual immorality is absolutely incompatible with imitating God and incompatible with walking in love. If you're going to walk in love, you've got to love your neighbor. If you're going to love your neighbor, you can't covet his stuff can't covet his ox, you can't covet his wife, you can't covet him, right? That's an appropriate thing to say in this day and age, right? You keep sexual desire within the context of marriage. Now, Paul tells us, he makes an interesting connection here. He's talking about sexual immorality, it's wickedness, and then he starts talking about speech. And he tells us that sexual immorality is not even to be named among us, and when he says it's not even to be named among us, he is telling us that it is not even to be mentioned. 
It is not even to be mentioned among us. Why? Because he tells us that is what is proper for the saints. And here we have to remember what it means to be a saint. To be a saint means to be sacred, holy, set apart unto God. And as saints, Paul's point here is that we have been set apart from the world and made holy by the blood of Christ in the sealing of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And since we have been set apart by the blood of Christ, sealed with the Spirit, we've been sanctified, we are saints, we, when the world hears us speaking, we should not sound like the world. We've been set apart from the world. The world should not hear coming from our mouths the same things that come out of the mouths of those who are strangers to Christ. Our speech should be pure. Now Paul, in telling us that we must keep our speech pure, Paul names three forms of impure speech that we are to avoid because these forms of speech are directly associated with sexual immorality. And that point really needs to stand out to us. That Paul is drawing a straight line between actual sexual immorality and the content of our speech. We can engage in sexual immorality in the way we talk. We don't often think of it in those terms. We think more of sexual immorality along the lines of what we look at or what we do with our bodies. But Paul is telling us here, no, sexual immorality can be committed with the way you talk, with your very words. And that's why I say it's not going to be named among you, because talking about it, celebrating it, is the same thing as doing it. It's morally the moral equivalent. And that's why it's not going to be named among us. And he names three kinds of corrupting speech that we are to avoid. Now, the reason why Paul calls these things corrupting speech earlier on, he says it in chapter 4, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, right? This is a, these are examples of corrupting talk. He calls it corrupting talk because this kind of impure speech has the potential to tempt others to engage in sexual immorality. When we have such speech, when we talk like this, when our speech is impure, we tempt others to engage in sexual immorality. Here's why impure speech tempts others to sexual immorality. Because it normalizes it. It normalizes sexual immorality and it treats it as if it is acceptable and it desensitizes those who hear it often. If you went to public school and you're a guy and you played football and you were in the locker room for any length of time, you know exactly what I am talking about when it comes to desensitizing others around you to sexual immorality with immoral, impure speech. That's how older guys corrupt the young guys coming in. It really is. They normalize it. You get the freshmen coming in. You have the upperclassmen in the locker room, and the upperclassmen are talking about their exploits, and they're talking about the impure things they're doing. And then the underclassmen hear it. And the underclassmen hear, well, if I'm going to be cool, if I'm going to fit in, I've got to do those things too. Things that a year ago would have been unthinkable for that freshman are now acceptable. Why? Because of what he's hearing from the upperclassmen in the locker room. Impure speech corrupts those around us. It desensitizes us. It normalizes immorality. So we don't have a problem with it. 
Brothers and sisters, why do you think in our society today there is such a push for political correctness? And why are the political correctness gurus, Pharisees we can call them, why are they so obsessed with getting us to talk in, quote-unquote, respectful ways about sexual immorality, about homosexuality and transgenderism, because they want it normalized. They don't want us to talk about it with shame. They don't want us to talk about it in hushed tones. They want it to be able to be a normal part of conversation so that you can talk about two men getting married with the same degree of normal, normalcy and comfort that you talk about going to the store to get a gallon of milk. They want to normalize it. They want to desensitize us to it. And as the people of God, we have to stand up and say, no, we will not be sensitized to this speech. I will not call a girl a him, and I will not call a man a her, because you're not going to warp my mind. You're not going to desensitize me. I'm not going to allow you, in the name of Christ, I'm not going to allow you to normalize this immorality, to normalize this impure speech. Because in normalizing it, the powers that be understand they make it acceptable. And others will be corrupted by it. Others will be corrupted by it. We have to resist that as the people of Christ. Now, this does not mean, and realize that we must resist such corrupting speech, this does not mean that we should be precious little flowers who wilt every time we hear a crude joke or obscene talk. If you've lived for five minutes in public, you know you're going to hear those things. You're going to hear obscene talk. You're going to hear crude jokes. You're going to hear all sorts of things. And we have to be tougher than that. We really do. We have to have a stiff upper lip. We have to have a strong jaw so that we can hear this stuff without being corrupted by it. And at the same time, without fainting. Because, oh my goodness, he just said a bad word. What am I ever going to do? Right? You keep your calm, you keep your composure, and you carry on. But you don't, you don't wilt when we hear these things. We have to be tougher than that. But it does mean that we don't allow ourselves to participate in such talk. And that when we're among our brothers and sisters in Christ, it must be completely absent from our speech. So let's briefly consider those three forms of speech that Paul tells us we have to avoid. First, he tells us that we have to avoid filthiness. Filthiness refers to obscene talk, to speak with obscenities. Now, as many of us know here from experience, many obscenities are connected with sexuality. They are. There's no way around that. And that was true in Paul's day, believe it or not. Even in Greek, obscenities were connected with sexuality. Now, we have to remember here that our words reveal the contents of our hearts. And if our language is filled with obscenity, what does that tell you? What does that tell me? If my language is filled with obscenity, what does that tell me about the, condi the condition and content of my heart? Filthy speech denotes a filthy heart. Have to remember that, saints. Filthy speech denotes a filthy heart. And what Paul is giving us here is a, a prohibition against talk that is sexually impure. Talk which normalizes sexual immorality. He's telling us it has no place among God's people. None whatsoever. It should not be treated as normal. Obviously, I have to stand up here and talk about it to explain it to you uh, from the pulpit. 
But I'm not engaging in celebrating it. I'm not treating it as normal. That's an important thing to remember. Paul's not saying don't ever discuss these things. He's saying don't discuss them as if they're normal. Treat them with appropriate shame and discretion. The next kind of talk he tells us to avoid is foolish talk. Morologia. Throw out the Greek for you there. Now this means literally foolish or stupid talk. Moronic talk, we could even say. Moronic talk. The kind of speech by which you identify morons, right? People who lack sense. Fools, in other words. Now, in this context, this kind of foolish talk is related, obviously, to sexuality because that's Paul's overarching concern. Now, let me be specific here for a moment. Foolish talk of a sexual sort can look different for guys and for gals. For men, this sort of foolish talk looks like or sounds like discussing a woman's appearance, how quote-unquote hot she is, recounting past experiences, sharing lurid stories, and so on and so forth. Again, the -the run-of-the-mill locker room discussions. That is foolish talk, Paul says. It, It makes us look dumb, and we're not to engage in it at all as God's people. Now, with ladies... I think it sounds very much the same. However, it's a bit different. I think with ladies, this especially can be a temptation for young ladies, especially young unmarried ladies. And I think it can sound like obsessing over boys for our gals. And I say that from experience, not because anyone obsessed over me when I was young. That's not what I'm saying. But I did grow up in a youth group, right? A youth group at a church, Bible-believing church. And in that youth group, the young ladies who I, I don't believe, you know, dads were really paying much attention to the kinds of things their daughters were talking about. Um, it got to the point where my brother and I just didn't get together with them anymore. We would just stay home because we got tired of listening to it. But these young ladies, when they would get together, they would spend most of their time, the overwhelming majority of their time, discussing which boy they had a crush on at the moment. And that's all they would talk about. That's what they would obsess over. They would fight about it. Who likes me? Who likes me? Who likes me? And we can look at that and think, well, that's just innocent. That's just part of growing up. No, saints, I don't think it's innocent. I really don't. I think what that is doing is inflaming desires that don't need any help being inflamed. That's what that is doing. So young ladies need to avoid obsessing over young men and worrying about who likes me, who doesn't like me, and discussing boys and so on and so forth. You know, I look back at the Elvis concerts of the 50s. I wasn't alive then, but I, I've seen them on video, right? The Beatles concerts and the young ladies just coming unglued for the Beatles and for Elvis and just throwing themselves up there. That's an example of such foolishness. Just coming unglued over, over young men. Paul says that is, I believe, Paul is telling us such speech, any kind of speech that encourages that kind of thinking, that kind of behavior, is foolishness and it ought to be avoided by God's people. The third form of speech that Paul tells us must not be named among us, must not be heard among us as a people of God, is crude joking. That is, I mean, that, I, not much explanation required there. We're not to engage in crude joking telling obscene, sexually-oriented jokes. This has no place among God's people. And you may be sitting there right now and thinking to yourself, Nate, you really think we need to hear this stuff? Yes, I do, because we're sinners, 
And we're prone to these things. And the moment we allow ourselves to think this, I don't need this, I don't need to hear this, we are setting ourselves up for trouble. So yes, we do need to hear this. That's why God gave it to us in his word. Now, instead of those three forms of crude speech, filthy speech that we are to avoid, corrupting speech, Paul tells us that rather than being characterized by that impurity, our speech is to instead be characterized by thanksgiving. He mentions that again. He repeats that later on in this chapter, pointing us to the necessity of thanksgiving. Now, why does Paul tell us that? He's essentially telling us here that the remedy, the answer to impure speech is thanksgiving. That's how you overcome it. That's how you avoid it, by having speech that is filled with thanksgiving. Why is that? Here's why. Remember what I said earlier, that sexual immorality is a result of covetousness, of discontent. Thanksgiving is the opposite of covetousness. When I'm giving thanks to God, I am fighting against my covetous tendencies as a sinner. And giving thanks to God for what he has given me. And I am training my heart to be content with what he has given. Rather than coveting that which he has not. And so yes, having speech filled with thanksgiving is the answer to impure speech. Because thanksgiving is the answer to covetousness. And covetousness is at the heart of sexual immorality. So when you have speech that is filled with thanksgiving, it denotes that you have a heart that is content with what God has given you and is not, which is not filled with lust for what he has not given. So Paul does not, is not telling us here that all of our conversations must be about listing everything that we're thankful for, although that's okay too to have those kinds of conversations. Sure, that's fine. But he is telling us here, his point really is that our speech is to be governed by an attitude of thanksgiving to God. That's to be what is reflected in our speech. Thanksgiving, contentment with what he's given. As you consider your speech, the way you talk from day to day, as I consider how about how I talk from day to day, what does your speech reflect? Does your speech flow with thanksgiving? Or is it filled with covetousness? Now finally, the warrant will close here with Paul's warning in verse 5. He tells us, he's writing this, remember, he's writing this to professing Christians who have been baptized, who are all assuming they know the Lord. And he's telling them, he's warning them, listen, if you are sexually immoral or impure, if you are covetous, then you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So he gives us that warning, which is an impetus, a motivation to repentance. And what he's telling us is this, saints, that if this immoral speech that he has discussed here, that he has tried to discourage us from engaging in, if that immoral speech is present upon your lips, then you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. This is what Paul is saying. If this speech is present upon your lips with, consistently and you, with consistency and you do not repent of it, if your speech is characterized by it, then you, regardless of your baptism, regardless of whatever profession of faith you have made, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of heaven, is what Paul is saying. Paul is telling us here not to deceive ourselves. Don't be deluded. Be honest. Examine your heart. 
Make your calling and election sure. Does this describe you? Is such speech present upon your lips? Is such covetousness present in your heart? If it is, there's only one thing to do, and that is to repent and flee to Christ and give thanks to God. That's what repentance looks like. If you're guilty of this kind of impurity and covetousness, then repentance looks like thanksgiving, giving thanks to God, especially for what he has given us in Christ. So here's the closing exhortation for all of us as we leave from here this morning. It's an exhortation we need to hear frequently that we must show ourselves to be true heirs of the kingdom in the way that we talk. In the way that we speak, we must show ourselves to be co-heirs with Christ, avoiding sexual immorality even in our speech, avoiding covetousness even in our conversations. And when we do that, saints, when we live, in a, when our speech is pure and we're imitating God in the way that we talk, we serve as salt and light to the world around us. And believe me, you know this very well, we are living in a society that is in desperate need of salt and light. Well, you can do something about that. You can do something about transforming our society for the glory of God. And it's very simple. All you need to do is go out from here and have pure speech. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that you've given us in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have purified our hearts and our lips by the fire of your Holy Spirit given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray you help us to put away all sexual immorality, everything that belongs to our earthly selves and to put on Christ. And we pray, Lord, that this would be reflected in our speech, that our speech would be characterized not by covetousness and sexual immorality, but that our speech would instead be characterized by thanksgiving to you for who you are what you've accomplished for us through the Lord Jesus. And Father, now we ask you to teach us how to pray just as our Lord Jesus taught his disciples. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, we read, and they all drank the same spiritual rock, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. This is speaking of the Jews as they wandered in the wilderness in their exodus out of Egypt. They were followed and fed by Christ. He was the rock that accompanied them, and they all drank from that rock. Paul says that this was written for us as an example, lest any of us be destroyed. In verse 5 it reads, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. In the wilderness, the solution to this dilemma was not to shrink back from eating and drinking in a false humility. Those who would not eat manna and those who would not drink the water from the rock would die. Remember, it was the wilderness. But many of those who came to eat and drink without believing faith and gratitude would also die. With many of them, God was not pleased, and their bodies were scattered over the wilderness. Those who died there were not just those who held back and watched others eat and drink Christ. Many of them came forward, but with impudence, which, Christ, which sin always fosters, confident that they had secured a portion of Christ by themselves. This table is the new covenant that is set before us. 
If you are baptized, you not only may come, but you must come. It's arrogance to separate yourself from the table in some sort of false humility. At the same time, it's a greater arrogance to come clutching your sins with both hands and trying to handle the bread and the cup in the same, at the same time. The only way to, to do this is to humble yourself before God. Really and genuinely humble yourself. You cannot partake of two tables, for you are required to take part of this one. So then come, come with humility of heart, grateful for all of God's kindnesses to each one of us. It's Christ's body, broken for us. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be called your children. Thank you for adopting us. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.